We're going to meet a woman today in the fourth chapter of John's gospel who desperately needs a touch of grace from our Savior. We're going to meet a woman who is lonely and rejected and burdened and broken in many ways. And we're going to see the Lord Jesus engage her and interact with her in an extremely kind, patient, wise, winsome, and yet challenging way. He wants to take the old empty shells of the things that she clings to for life and to replace them with with new and, and vibrant hope and spiritual life. And he wants to do the same thing for us. He extends the same kind of grace, the same kind of offer to us today, which is why the story of this woman in John 4 from 2,000 years ago matters to us. Because the same offer that Jesus is going to extend to this broken, lonely woman, he extends to each one of us today. And so really, we're going to find that this woman uh, in Samaria, in John chapter 4, is, is really just like us. We might not be broken in the exact same ways, but the truth is we're all broken um, relationally and in every capacity uh, by our sin. And her conversation with Jesus is going to reveal something about him. It's going to reveal a glory of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and the life that he Offers. And so remember that the very purpose of John's writing this gospel, he tells us at the end of it, in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So every story that we come to in the gospel of John, we would do well to ask ourselves the question, how does this story reveal to us Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. He tells us in chapter 1 in his kind of extended reflection on God the Son taking on human form in the person of Jesus. He tells us that he, the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. And so we ask the question, how do we see the glory of Jesus in the story that we encounter today? in the fourth chapter of John's gospel. And that'll give us a good guideline, a good guardrail, if you will, to walk along as we look to this story. Now, before we get into the story, I want to give you a couple of reminders about what John is doing and about where this happens in the context of, of, of the story that John is unfolding about Jesus. So there's, there's some things here that I think we notice by taking this story next to the story of Jesus and Nicodemus that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 3. So in John chapter 3, this rabbi named Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and asks him, basically, where do you come from? Who are you? We think you're from God. And Jesus has this lengthy conversation with him. And then I, so I think that the conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation with this Samaritan woman that Jesus is going to meet at a well um, are, are intended by John to be seen kind of side by side. And there are some very key contrasts between those two stories. The first one is the contrast between dark and light. Because Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, right? By the cover of darkness. 
because he was afraid. He didn't want to be seen as uh, colluding with Jesus in some way. And so he comes by the cover of night. The story we're going to read today, Jesus meets this woman at noon in the heat of the day. And so there's a day and night, a dark and light contrast. Of course, Nicodemus is a man, and this Samaritan that Jesus meets today is a woman. And so there's the contrast of man and woman. Nicodemus is religious. In fact, he's got a very high pedigree in terms of his religious stature and resume as a Pharisee and a a teacher of the law. And the woman that he meets uh, in Samaria is, by all accounts, a secular worldly woman. And then there's the contrast between Jewish and Samaritan. And we'll talk a little bit in a few minutes about some of how that distinction would come to the surface in this conversation. But Nicodemus kind of representing the people of God, uh, the nation of Israel, and the Jewish religious system that had been set up by God that they've been carrying out and their identity as God's people in contrast to the Samaritans who the Jews saw as less than, as sort of half-breeds, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. So there's these contrasts that John is kind of bringing out, and the, and the responses that we get from Nicodemus and from this Samaritan woman are not the kinds of responses you would expect based on their kind of position in life, whereas Nicodemus sort of fades back into the darkness, and John doesn't tell us how Nicodemus really responded in the moment to Jesus' answer to him about being born again. We're going to see in this story that, that this broken, secular, worldly Samaritan woman really responds to Jesus' truth and teaching and offer in a very different way. I also want to remind you, there's a picture that I showed you a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if I can pull that up, that would be good. Uh, the, the, of what John is doing in these few chapters of his gospel. So there are four kind of uh, important aspects of Jewish religion and faith that Jesus is interacting with during these few chapters. And so back in the beginning of chapter two, we saw uh, Jesus attended a wedding uh, and he cleansed, uh, excuse me, um, he, he changed these this water from these purification pots into wine. And by doing that, he was demonstrating that cleansing by his blood is superior to the ritual cleansing that was a part of the Jewish religious system. And so kind of saying, I'm here and I'm bringing a new and better way. The next part of chapter two, we saw over here on the top right-hand corner, we saw Jesus enter a te- the temple in Jerusalem and cleanse it of all these money changers and uh, people that were uh, selling pigeons and sac- animals for sacrifice at a high rate. And he cleanses it and he tells them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Of course, speaking of his body and not of the literal temple. And by doing this, he demonstrates that he himself will become the new temple, the new location, if you will, of God's presence with his people. So he sets aside the purification rites. He sets aside the temple. In chapter three, we saw him talk with the rabbi Nicodemus and tells him that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And by doing that, Jesus declared that the whole religious system of Judaism and the teaching of the law uh, that Nicodemus himself was doing is insufficient to save sinners, and that the way to new birth was to look to Christ upon the cross. 
And as he said in John 3, 16, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so he's been one by one engaging with these important aspects of Jewish life and religion and setting them aside and showing that he himself is the fulfillment and the replacement of those religious traditions and systems. And so now in chapter four, we come to a sacred well in the town of Sikhar in Samaria. This is the well that Jacob, the very father of the nation of Israel, whose 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob gave this well and this land to his son Joseph all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so this well as historic revered by the people, uh, possibly shrouded in superstition. Like if you drink from this well, there's good luck and things that might come to you. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that the water, the living water that he comes to bring far surpasses the water that could come from this sacred well. And so with those things in mind, we jump into the story in John chapter 4. So last week we saw Jesus and John the Baptist uh, kind of uh, with a parallel baptizing ministry in the region of Judea, which is just out, which is where Jerusalem is. And so they're outside Jerusalem in Judea baptizing. And the beginning of chapter four tells us that Jesus finds out that the Pharisees have learned that Jesus' ministry is getting more attention than John's. And so he leaves and heads north for Galilee. I don't think Jesus is afraid of the Pharisees, but I think maybe there's some unwanted attention because he knows that his hour has not yet come, which John tells us in a number of places. And so we see there in these first few verses that the Pharisees, who had already gone and interrogated John the Baptist, all right, are you the Christ? He did that back in chapter one. Well, now Jesus' ministry is getting more attention. More people are going over to Jesus for baptism instead of John the Baptist. And so the Pharisees have learned that there's a lot of people that are going over to Jesus and his ministry is getting a whole lot of attention. So just as they went to interrogate John, they certainly would be not far from, uh, from pursuing Jesus and interrogating him as well. And so he leaves. It says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And answering the question or asking ourselves the question, how do we see the glory of Jesus demonstrated in this story. I think we see the first way right here in the way that he leaves. He leaves Judea and heads for Galilee. And in the way that he leaves, we see the glory of a missional Jesus. Missional is kind of a made up word, but it means living on mission. A Jesus who is always intentional and aware of the mission that God the Father has sent him on and makes every decision based on that purpose and how he would fulfill this mission. Look there in verse four. It says, uh, verse three says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse four, and he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. It was the most direct route. In fact, I've got a map here to show you. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time here, but this gives you a basic idea. This is Palestine in Jesus' day. And so Judea, you see in the red, that's down there. You've got Jerusalem right there. Uh, that's the region where the, the Jews, the religious Jews, uh, live. And then just north of that is the region of Samaria. And then just north of that is the region of Galilee. Galilee is where Nazareth 
which is where Jesus kind of grew up. That's where Nazareth is. It's also where the town of Cana is, where we saw Jesus attend the wedding and turn water into wine. That happened in that little town, Cana, way up to the north. So you can see that the most direct route from Judea to Galilee goes right through Samaria, right? So John says he had to go through Samaria. Well, he really didn't have to go through Samaria. And in fact, most conservative religious Jews of that day would have specifically and intentionally not gone through Samaria. And in fact, would have added some days to their journey to avoid going through Samaria by, cut, by cutting out to the east and going up along the banks of the Jordan River. And then when they got just south of the Sea of Galilee, they would cut back west into the Valley of Jezreel, and then they'd be in, uh, head north into the region of Galilee. So they would go all the way around the region of Samaria to avoid the Samaritans. The reason for that being that there are, by this time, long-standing, deep-seated racial, religious, and political rivalries between conservative Jews and Samaritans, who the Jews regarded as half-breeds. So back in 722 BC, when the, the kingdom of Assyria uh, raided uh, the, the nation of Israel and sent them all into captivity, they began to repopulate the region of Samaria with, uh, with Assyrians and other kind of non-Jewish ethnicities. And the Jews who live, remained there or returned there kind of started intermarrying with these other uh, ethnicities, and that was seen as a, as a no-no, and in fact was against God's originally stated law for the nation of Israel. And so uh, after centuries of kind of marrying and having children and growing families without the, the boundary of a Jewish identity and ethnicity, um, they, were, they were seen as not quite Jewish, right? They were not pure people. They were seen as unclean. And by the time of Jesus' day, the Samaritans who were religious, all of them certainly were not religious, but the, the Samaritans who were religious had their own system. They had uh, their own Bible. In fact, they only believed up through the, the first five books of the Bible called the Law or the Torah. That's all that the Samaritans accepted. They rejected all the prophets and the history books. They didn't believe that those things were real. Uh, and so they only accepted the law. So they had their own Bible. Uh, they had their own traditions, their own teachers of the law, uh, and they had even built their own temple. Because remember, we talked about how Jesus engaged with the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the Jews, the pure Jews, if you will, um, would go to worship. But the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount uh, Gerizim in this region. So they've got their own separate kind of system of how they do things. And so the fact that Jesus chooses the route through Samaria to get to Galilee, and that John uses the phrase, he had to go through Samaria, gives us a clue that Jesus isn't just being economical or seeking the most efficient route. He is headed for a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. And this is the route that will take him to her. And so we find Jesus going through Samaria, not out of necessity, because in fact, if he were going to keep with the traditions of religious Jews, he would have avoided Samaria altogether. So he had to go through Samaria because God had sent him there. God had a mission for him in Samaria. And so verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
and Jacob's well was there. So here then is this sacred well, this revered historic artifact connecting the people of Samaria all the way back to the very foundations of the nation of Israel in Jacob and his son Joseph. And so here he is in Sikar. And when he comes to this well, we see the glory of a human Jesus. The glory of a human Jesus. Look in verse 6 there. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That is noon. They counted the the hours of the day from about 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour is right about noon, which is the highest, hottest part of the day. And so Jesus is wearied from his journey. Now, John's gospel emphasizes the deity, the godness of Jesus so strongly and so persistently that at times it's good to be reminded that the glory of the incarnation is the fullness of deity and true humanity living together in one person. And so Jesus, yes, is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, the one by whom and for whom everything was created. And yet, Jesus is tired. He is weary from travel and the heat of the, the noonday sun. And so he stops by the well that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and he rests. We've seen the glory of a missional, intentional Jesus. We've seen the glory of a human Jesus. Well, now he sends his disciples off into town to buy food, and now he waits by the well, knowing all the while, I trust, that this woman that he has come all this way to meet will be along shortly. And when she does come along, we see the glory of a boundary-breaking Jesus. Look in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That doesn't sound shocking to us, but it was. It was certainly surprising to this woman, as we find in just a minute, her response to that. Jesus has already bucked Jewish religious tradition by traveling through Samaria, right? And now he's going, his address to this Samaritan woman in verse 7 breaks several more uh, religious and social conventions. So for one thing, Jews don't deal with Samaritans. We've already talked about the way that Jews viewed Samaritans. They were unclean. They were not to be talked to, engaged with. Uh, we don't participate in the same things as they do. And in fact, John tells us in verse 10, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So he's now bucking this tradition, this system, this convention saying, don't talk to the Samaritans. Don't deal with the Samaritans because he's addressed her personally. Men don't address women in public. That was a, that was a normal part of the, the culture of this day and time. 
Uh, men and women were not seen as conversation partners or as philosophical partners, right? Men were leaders. Women had their place in the, in the, the society and, and in the culture. And it was non-standard, to say the least, for a man to publicly address a woman. So when Jesus addresses this woman, she's not just a Samaritan, she's a Samaritan woman, which to the religious conservative Jews would have placed her even farther down the list of people to engage with. And yet Jesus intentionally engages her and addresses her in conversation in a public place. Another convention that he breaks is that Jesus was respected right? He was, a, he was a teacher. He was wise. He was sought after. He was some, becoming something of a celebrity in his day. And this woman was a total social reject. Even as women went in Samaria, she was rejected among women, which we'll see some of that as we go through the story as well. And so you've got this respected person addressing this kind of social uh, low life, if you will. That's another boundary that Jesus breaks. Jesus is a religious person. He's a rabbi. He's seen as a teacher of God's law. And this woman, we find, is really not religious and and in all senses is really very worldly and and secular. So you've got the religious and secular divide that Jesus breaks through. Now, I don't think Jesus is just breaking social boundaries um, just for the, the sake of being controversial um, or to send some anarchist, you know, anti-authority message. I think when a social or religious boundary has been established that keeps a needy soul from coming to him and finding eternal life, he will challenge that boundary every time. And so Jesus sees this woman as a person made in the image of God in need of healing and help and grace. And if there are mountains of social and religious boundaries in the way that would keep him from her, who cares? I'm not dealing with those. I'm going to meet this woman's need. And so he breaks the boundary. I wonder in our own day and in our own hearts, in our own world, who do, to whom does Jesus want to speak today that he's having a hard time reaching To whom might he be calling us as the church, as his people, yet meeting social and religious barriers on our part? He's saying, go, and we're saying, well, only this far. Whom do we deem unworthy to receive the grace of the gospel? Whom, if we're honest with ourselves and with God, would we prefer not to receive the invitation to new life? If such boundaries exist in our hearts or in our culture, you can be sure that Jesus will delight in tearing them down because no boundary that keeps a person from coming to faith in Christ and finding the new life that he alone offers is worth upholding and he will tear it down. Well, the Samaritan woman, of course, recognizes the political incorrectness, if you will, of Jesus' request, saying in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she's aware this is not normal. This is not what Jewish men do. How could you possibly 
be speaking to me? And how could you possibly ask me for a drink? And in fact, the phrase that John gives us in verse 10, or excuse me, in verse 9, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, literally, the Greek reads something more like Jews uh, did not use with Samaritans, which really had to do with, with sharing, using the same vessel. And so as she's come to the water, uh, to the well to draw water, she's got her bucket. When Jesus says, give me a drink, he's not just saying, will you help me get water? He's saying, let me drink water from your cup, from your bucket. And so when John tells us, Jews don't use with Samaritans, he's saying, they don't drink from the same cup because that would risk the Jew becoming ceremonially unclean. And then he would have to go through some ritual of cleansing and purification to be able to be acceptable to God again, right? Jesus is saying, give me a drink from your cup. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink? In his reply to her question, how is it that you do this? In his reply, we see the glory of a life-giving Jesus. This is a Jesus who has in his hands and at his disposal life and true life and eternal life. And we're going to see that he wants to give it to this woman. In verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A couple of notes here. First, please see that the only thing standing in the way of this woman and Jesus' living water is that she had to ask for it. She had to know. He said, if you just knew who I was, if you just knew the gift that I'm able to give, you would ask me. And what did he say? If you asked me, I would give it. I would give it to you. Second, living water here. When he says, I would give you living water, that's not quite as spiritual a phrase as it sounds to us. We've gotten used to thinking of living water as this, this kind of spiritual reality, which Jesus is using it as a metaphor for this, uh, this spiritual reality. But really, it had a, a physical, tangible real, a place in their life. And living water just meant running water like water that naturally moved as in a stream or a river or something like that, a spring, as opposed to still water that had been placed in a bucket or put into a cup of some kind, right? So this is, so living water just means running uh, spring water. And so um, th- that awareness, I think, makes it a little easier for us to understand why the woman misinterprets Jesus in a literal way. Because he doesn't follow him yet to the spiritual truth that he's getting to. When he says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She says in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Isn't, wait, are you telling me that you've found a stream of water in this desert? You're telling me that you know about a spring of living water that we have never seen in this dry place? She goes a bit deeper in verse 12, revealing an awareness of Samaritan history and heritage, at least. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, 
Because remember, this well and this land was given by Jacob to Joseph. And so this is their home. This is their well. This is, this is Jacob's well, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Like you're able to give me living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. So she misses it. And here we're going to see the true essence of what Jesus is offering. He's not just saying, I've got water that won't run out. Verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you see the generosity of this offer? He isn't speaking of literal water. He is speaking of life, real life, spiritual life, eternal life that can be found only in him. He's using the physical image of a stream of running water as a metaphor for the spiritual life and vitality that flow through the soul of a person who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you only knew the gift of God, you would ask and I would give you living water. And if you would drink this living water, you would never be thirsty again. It would become in you, in your heart, in your soul, a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. If you would just ask, I would give you living water and you would never thirst again. Well, she misses the point. Just like the temple leaders in John 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days, they went, wait a second, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to be able to build it in three days? And John tells us he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body in his death and resurrection. Well, they didn't get the spiritual truth. Just like Nicodemus in John 3, when Jesus said to him, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, Nicodemus went, where am I going to find a womb big enough to crawl back into to be born again? That doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't make sense because you're not seeing the spiritual truth that Jesus is giving you. And just in the same way, the Samaritan woman is blind to the spiritual reality that Jesus is inviting her into. Because in verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's kind of willing to concede, all right, maybe this guy has a source of living, flowing water that I don't know about, and he's offering it to me, so sure. If you've got water, that will mean I never have to come to this well again and draw water here, then sure, I'll take it. Let me have it. And I think we start to see a window into this woman's life and pain and brokenness in this moment. I think the burden and, and the hardship and the pain of coming to this well over and over every day is intimately tied to the secret shame that has defined her life for years and that Jesus is about to expose. We're going to have to pick up next week at this part of the story to learn what is really at the depths of this woman's brokenness and her experience and how Jesus is going to meet her in the most needy, most vulnerable place of her life with grace and compassion and truth. 
So for today, let's, conf- let's conclude with a few thoughts, a few questions to consider. You got to come back. They always say, Let them, leave them wanting more. Right? All right. Here's some questions for us. What might be keeping you from, receive, from receiving the spiritual life that Jesus wants to give you? What boundaries do you have in your heart that perhaps keep Jesus at arm's length and won't allow him into your life? Why not ask God today to start tearing down those barriers? Just invite him into those places in your heart that you've been hiding away. After all, Jesus is seeking you, right? We've seen, we've seen Jesus intentionally going through Samaria to meet with this woman. He, don't think for a minute he doesn't do the very same thing with us. He is intentionally seeking us out. He is an intentional, gracious, boundary-breaking, life-giving Savior. Won't you trust in him today and receive the living water of eternal life? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, you've known Jesus for a long time, but you're not really partnering with Jesus in his boundary-breaking, life-giving mission. Maybe there are people that you won't approach, situations you'd rather avoid, words you'd rather not speak for fear, insecurity, bitterness and resentment, prejudice. If that describes you, would you simply ask God today, to begin reshaping your heart around the mission that he's calling you to, to to give you his love and compassion for people, to feel the burden of grace and truth that he's entrusted you with in this world. The Lord may want to speak to your heart in in different ways here. I just want to give him a moment to do that. So would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? And let's just let the Lord deal with our hearts as he desires Just ask him that question. Lord, what do you want to say to me? What barrier do I have in my own life and heart that keeps me from saying yes to you? Is there a sin pattern, a secret shame that you live in? Maybe you feel like you're not worthy of coming to to God. He won't really accept you. I want to confess that to him. Ask him for the faith to believe in the living water that Jesus came to bring. Ask him to show you any boundary in your own heart and mind toward other people. Lord, is there something keeping me from engaging with people the way you intend? What structures or beliefs or institutions do I hold up that keep me from reaching out to people across these boundaries? Ask him to show that to you. And then ask him for the courage to break through them in his name, with his gospel. Lord, we confess to you that we are this Samaritan woman at the well in so many ways. We'll learn even more in depth next week about the the pain and the shame that has bound her for years. I think we all have our own sins and and secrets and hang-ups and embarrassments and things we'd rather not talk about. Lord, sometimes we have false beliefs and prejudices against others. 
that keep us from reaching with love and compassion the way that you want us to. We confess these things. And I ask you, for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the advance of your kingdom and for the purpose of seeing you at work in our lives and in our community and through this community, Lord, would you break through those barriers? Would you teach us and lead us to pursue people with grace the way that we see Jesus pursuing? Would you enlarge our vision and our understanding of who Jesus is? The way that he lived intentionally on mission to pursue what God the Father sent him to do. The way that in his humanity we see that he subjected himself to weakness and limitations for our sake. The way that we see him breaking boundaries and, and not holding to social norms and structures that would keep people from him. And the way that we see Jesus generously offering life. Lord, give us this vision of who Jesus is and then let that vision send us out in his name to do the same kind of boundary-breaking, life-giving ministry for his glory. And we confess, Lord, that we need you to do this work in our hearts. We don't have it in ourselves. Would you come? Would you fill us? Would you compel us and then send us out for your glory? In Jesus' name.